1: Hey, Jim. Good to see you again. Obviously, there's a lot in the news about Ukraine, about which we do not have very much insight at all. But I do think that it's worth discussing the market reaction so far, at least to that, and supply our listeners with some context to perhaps today's most momentous sanctions announcement was actually from Germany with regard to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and I think that's worthy of some comment and uh, an attempt at some analysis. Anyway, I know that we've had, before we get onto that, some interesting feedback on our recent podcasts, which you certainly would like to comment on, and perhaps I'll join in as well. There were a few pieces of note amongst the many pieces of feedback that we've got. I noticed that one commentator Um, accused you of being rather soft on the shinners which I must admit took me by surprise because I listened back to what you said and I listened back in my head anyway to everything that you said to me about Irish politics for the last 30 years that I've known you and I must say I can't find anything in in that uh, memory recall that would support our listeners accusation of you being a wee bit soft on the shinners. Perhaps you'd like to comment on that and maybe the one or two other things that are worthy of mention.
0: Yeah, Chris, how's it going? Uh, yeah, that 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 comment was really took uh, took me for six. Uh, he said that, Jim, your article almost concedes on the notion that Sinn Féin have a magic solution worth trying. And he says that I'm an experienced, sorry, you're an experienced economist, Jim. You know what happens when countries experiment with hard left socialist agendas. Let's rationally explain the economic consequences of both good choices and daft choices. Um, And and a lot in in between. Uh, I found that sort of reaction to what I was saying quite extraordinary. Um, I wrote the piece about the housing market and I was saying that the longer the dysfunction of the housing market continues, the more it's going to play into the hands of Sinn Féin. And I was saying that there is a certain age segment here Uh, basically those aged between about 25 and 40 where Sinn Féin's support is growing very very strongly and the one thing they all have in common is that they are basically in the uh, that age segment where they're buying their first house and are finding it very difficult to do so at the moment so they are that that part of the electorate at least some of it is um, going over to Sinn Féin because they believe if the incumbent parties are not going to solve this, well, then let's give Sinn Féin a chance. Um, I was not saying for one moment that I believed Sinn Féin would be capable of solving this crisis. And in fact, I don't believe they would. And I have written and spoken going back a number of years, actually, about the impact, the potential impact of Sinn Féin policies on the Irish economic model. So... um, And I I don't have to make any apologies for um, my views on this. They are my views. uh, But I don't like having my views misinterpreted. OK, so I think that's important to uh, put on the line. If I might say
1: just at this point, Jim, that, you know, we often try very hard to look at ourselves in the mirror and ask, have we been communicating properly uh, when people misunderstand? And it has happened before what we say we we look at our own communication skills and wonder if they're lacking because it it's this is a job of communicating and i think in the first instance our presumption must be that um, we're not great communicators if people have misunderstood us but in this particular case that wasn't so where this guy got his interpretation of your words from i i don't know maybe he didn't listen carefully enough maybe maybe he was interrupted while he was listening to us but in in my very firm views about what you have said on this podcast and indeed elsewhere, Um, your views are absolutely crystal clear. One of the things I wanted to say at at this point is that I don't want to go into an awful lot of analysis of Sinn Féin's manifesto and its costings and it's this and it's that, but a couple of things do uh, come to mind. One thing that I should have said in the last few podcasts is in response to other people writing to us about why being in that demographic of late 20s, early 30s, buying first homes, finding it next to impossible, and that's why they're willing to give Sinn Féin a go. We don't agree that it's the right response, but we have just been acknowledging that response. A lot of these people have been talking about their incomes and describing themselves and, and their household, if you like, themselves and their partner as, as being, sometimes we had people saying they had two, three times average earnings. Now, one of the things that will happen to a high-spending, hard-left, socialist-style government is, as sure as night follows day, taxes are going to go up. And they will go up if those spending commitments by a left-wing Sinn Féin government um, do come to pass in the way that I think they will. um, Taxes are going to go up a lot. Sinn Féin have said that they won't put personal taxes up. I think it's in their manifesto on anybody under 100000 But quite frankly, that doesn't make any arithmetic sense because if they need the money to spend in the way that they think that they're going to spend, that they're likely to spend, they're going to be coming after you, those people that are on two to three times average earnings. It's not a lot of money in the context of buying a house, as we know, but it is where most of the money is that's waiting to be taxed in Ireland, if that's what you want to do. So be careful what you wish for would be my advice to those to those people saying let's give Sinn Féin a go you could be well very badly hurt in your pocket through higher taxes would be a, a warning that I would issue the second thing I wanted to say relates to an article that I stupidly read in the Irish Times the other day it's not a columnist I read very often because I, I, I don't find it that enlightening but Una Malali wrote a piece last week that had talked about these points that we've been addressing And she said explicitly, and I think this is a quote, that the housing crisis has been engineered by Fine Gael. I can't understand how any newspaper would allow a columnist to say something like that, because it makes no sense whatsoever. You can make all sorts of accusations of politicians all around the world, of them telling lies, of doing stupid things but accusing a government of deliberately engineering a crisis, deliberately is the word used, engineering is the word used, such that you create the situation whereby you're going to be voted out of office because people believe this kind of thing. It it, it was an incredible statement. I don't know what you thought of it, Jim.
0: I thought it was deranged, to be honest. You know, how any party, as you say, would engineer a situation where they would, create a problem that would ultimately put him out of power uh, defies all sorts of belief and logic okay um so i i just leave it at that but this, the same um columnists I, I mean i don't read um as a rule because i, I just find it utterly bizarre and it, it almost every week if you even the headline on the thing and i know that's probably written by a sub editor but it just gets my blood pressure up and uh I mean, you pointed that one out to me. I went and read it. I uh, thought it was absolutely bizarre notion to suggest. You know, I, I I don't believe even if Sinn Féin do get into government next time, that they will try and engineer a situation where they'll make any problem worse that will ultimately undermine their re-election prospects. It's 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 bizarre.
1: Governments can governments can do that by accident all the time. Of course, of course they can. can. That's called stupid. Popular. Popular. But the idea
0: that you do it deliberately is just weird. Yeah, it is. It is very very weird. Uh, but it just shows uh, the weird nature of a lot of commentary out there. Um, there, was, there was another um, comment made that, I mean, I, I, we spoke last week about the high cost of living in Ireland. And uh, we mentioned a lot of factors. We spoke about the, uh, the the cost of medical services here in Ireland. We were citing an OECD survey showing that Ireland was one of the most expensive countries for medical services in the OECD region. And um, I mentioned uh, a story that during the period of austerity back in 2000 and I don't know, was it 9, 10, around that period that I was at the IMO conference in Killarney and I was asked uh, to comment by Fergal and RTE TV about comments from the consultants that day saying that they should not be subject to the austerity measures that other parts of society were being subjected to. And I expressed incredulity at that sort of notion and I sort of suggested or I argued that why should consultants be any different than anybody else in Irish society and um, I got a very frosty reception that evening when I spoke at the conference and uh, I also simply made the point I didn't say I was blacklisted I said that that was the last time I was asked to speak at the IMO annual conference and I had spoken at it for a number of years um, perhaps I am confusing cause and effect, uh, but that's the factual situation as it happened. And I have subsequently um, spoken at the IMO Financial Services Investment Seminars. I've done a couple of Zoom seminars over the last year or two, um, but I merely made the point that I was not asked back to speak at the annual conference. Perhaps, Perhaps it had nothing whatsoever to do with the swipe I took at the consultants but um, you know maybe I'm confusing cause and effect, but there you are uh, that's the situation as I see it. Uh, there, there was another comment um, in relation to this was a belated comment um, as self-admitted by the writer to the piece we wrote um, and spoke about in relation to the package of measures that the government introduced a few weeks back to try and alleviate the cost of living. Um, And as you know, I was certainly very critical of those described it as populist bullshit at the time. And um, the writer of this comment asked the very valid question, you know, why did Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath not contemplate tax changes to minimize the impact of inflation, such as reduced VAT rates, um, assuming that those reduced VAT rates would be passed on? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that they didn't. Um, I don't understand why they didn't. I think it would have been a much better way to address this problem. But there there you are. I think it's it's an incredibly uh, valid comment from a listener to our podcast. So I guess, Chris, that wraps up. Um, Some of the feedback we've been getting, just pick out some of the more interesting ones. Um, It's been an incredible 24 hours as well. Uh, Putin's speech yesterday, you know, was quite extraordinary. I saw... And Applebaum, whom you referred to in our last podcast, um, described with incredulity the historical references that were made by Putin in his speech last night. And, you know, she basically believes that he totally misunderstands or misrepresents the history of the Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, it's it's it, it was an incredible speech. Um, and I also note this afternoon that Reuters News Agency has corrected all of its headlines in relation to what Putin said. Um, it initially reported that Putin had ordered Russian, sorry, had ordered peacekeepers into the Ukraine. They have altered that headline out to say that Putin orders Russian troops into the Ukraine. Um, I think that's a much, much more accurate representation of what actually Putin has done. So how do you see the Ukraine situation at the moment. Your comments about Putin's speech, I think,
1: were well made. And there is a terrific article, uh, certainly online, I don't know whether it's in the paper, on the FT website today by its former editor, Lionel Barber, that essentially deconstructed Putin's speech and showed it up to be the gross misrepresentation. He wasn't mistaken, Jim. He was just laying the groundwork for a further invasion. Of Ukraine, because he was, he, um, as Barber said, he kicked off his speech by asserting, and this is a quote since time immemorial, the people living in the southwest of what has historically been Russian land have called themselves Russians and Orthodox Christians. And that it, his purpose, says Barber, was to deny the very notion of a Ukrainian nationhood separate from that of Russia. Now, why would you do that? Well, you do that because you, you want to uh, ab- abolish Ukraine. And Barber goes into the history of Ukraine, to show that those comments by Putin were just wrong, and that, uh, that there has been a Ukrainian nation. It's been messed around with by Bolsheviks, by Germans, by all sorts of different uh, people, by the Tsars. It's a great article, so and I would strongly urge anyone t- to read it. Things that have been happening since the invasion of Ukraine over the last 24, 48 hours amounted to sanctions being announced uh, in particular by the UK and Germany but also others and um, the EU is getting involved as well and Germany has been the most significant. They really have done something that people generally speaking didn't expect and they cancelled something called the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Johnson, Boris Johnson in the UK has also announced some sanctions which have, uh, uh, many people have described as a pea shooter. Uh, they can't understand why he hasn't gone further The stated rationale is that they're saving the big sanctions for the next phase of the um, invasion. Um, Whether that proves to be true or not, I don't know, because there's a lot of naked self-interest playing out here in the UK, but also in Germany. Uh, The city of London, it is widely reported, is awash with Russian money, and that's been well known. The uh, political system here, it is alleged, has been corrupted by Russian money. Uh, there are people with very Russian sounding names now with British citizenship sitting in the House of Lords, being rewarded for all sorts of things. Not least one um, one hears that that's their donations to um, the, the party of government. And obviously unpicking all of that might be a Pandora's box that Boris Johnson doesn't want to open. I would urge anybody to Google the phrase, why did Johnson delay publication of the russia report a couple of years ago as being just one saga to be told in this is this broader story Uh, and the russia report was all about russian money in british politics and in particular the way it's getting into the conservative party so it's 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 dirty stuff and um there are cynical interpretations of what's going on um, and that some people are willing to take at face value that johnson isn't um it has is saving up the the bigger sanctions to just sanction three individuals for example and a handful of banks that nobody's ever heard of uh, doesn't amount to very much but germany's cancellation of Nord Stream 2 is a much bigger deal and um, this is the pipeline that that uh, essentially it was going to increase the supply of russian gas to germany there's Nord Stream 1, which is already in existence, which supplies an awful lot of, uh, of natural gas to, to Germany. And the, Germany's energy policies are a disaster, and that's allowing themselves to become addicted to, to, to Russian gas in particular. And uh, that was the, a decision originally taken by Gerhard Schroeder, the previous chancellor prior to Angela Merkel, and she continued these policies. It's worth noting that Schroeder now sits on the board of Gazprom, the Russian state energy company, and is widely reported to be a personal friend of Putin. That's an ex-German chancellor. Merkel is to blame. The sainted Angela Merkel did some pretty dumb things. Uh, One suspects, not so much out of conviction, she being a scientist, but more out of trying to protect her flank from the Green vote in Germany. And the Greens, of course, are very anti-nuclear. And she cancelled all of Germany's nuclear plants in the wake of the Fukushima um, nuclear disaster in Japan a good few years ago now. And that's widely thought to be a strategic error because it just increased the dependency, the addiction to imported energy in general and Russian energy in particular. So... Cancelling Nord Stream 2, given how much you depend on Russian gas, is a big deal. That That is doing what Johnson clearly didn't want to do and hurting yourself potentially in a, in a big way. I think we should applaud what West Germany has done, but where they're going to get their energy supplies from, um, where they're going to get their substitute energy from, I don't know. Yeah,
0: Chris, do- I, I saw um, stats from Eurostat today suggesting that Um, The EU imports 41% of its natural gas from Russia and 26.9% of crude oil. So this is big stuff.
1: Oh, absolutely. And uh, Germany must start, for example, importing liquefied natural gas. It doesn't have any facilities to do that, really. It's building one LNG uh, importation terminal. And it needs to build an awful lot more if it's if it's to find substitutes for this. And it's got to reconsider. One might presume that decision about nuclear, because where it's going to get its its heating from, its energy from, is is now a real open question. But they 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 they, they, need, they should be applauded for this, in in my opinion. But Europe has made a strategic blunder. Germany in particular, Europe in general, in allowing itself to become addicted to uh, to Russian gas uh, in germany i've seen it said today that what will happen is that once this should this all blow over should putin stay in these republics that he has recognized and invaded and then doesn't go into the rest of ukraine that it will be business as usual and Nord Stream 2 will quietly be restarted that's quite cynical i think um this is obviously going to play out in ways that we we cannot predict But um, that that certainly is one suggestion. And I must say, Jim, the market's reaction today, and by that I mean things like foreign exchange markets, stock markets, bond markets, and indeed the Russian equity market itself, the reaction to the invasion has been pretty muted. There are a number of possible explanations for that. There's an old saying in financial markets that when it comes to war, the time to buy is when actually the shooting starts. Um, Again, we're seeing an example of market cynicism there. Uh, I don't know whether that's the right reaction or not. The interpretation, the most common interpretation that I've seen on the market reaction to the news of the Ukrainian invasion is that the markets are essentially making a bet that this is it, that it will all quieten down now. There will be a bit of saber rattling and the odd flare up. But there won't be a generalized invasion, and in particular they won't try to take Kiev who knows? I certainly don't know. I suspect the markets don't either. But the the Russian equities, for example, have been on an incredibly volatile ride, as you might expect over the last while. They were heavily down on the news. But as we speak, they're now up on the day. So um it, it remains to be seen. But the the invasion itself, of course, does complicate the task of economic policy making. We're not qualified to say very much about the military or indeed the political outlook for Ukraine and the wider European region. But the the way in which it complicates all the things that we've been talking about, which is the central banks attempting to curb inflation, that makes it even more difficult than it already was, because gas prices have ticked up again today. Um, then as we approach the spring, um, gas futures prices should be going down. They're not. Uh, so it looks as if the energy side of the inflation equation could well stay higher for longer we know that oil has approached a hundred dollars um, in the recent in recent hours uh, and you know that's a psychological barrier for the oil price and we can all see that in the price of petrol that we're paying at the pumps certainly seeing that in the uk for sure uh, so um it on the one hand you would say that the an energy shock is something that central banks should gently lean against at most but it's not something they can do an awful lot about they need, just need to watch if it leads to a generalized inflation but given the generalized inflation that we've already got i'm afraid it's that old joke about you wouldn't want to start from here and i um, if you thought that the energy shock was of a 70s style um, that ultimately le- will lead to to recession and the un- the generalized uncertainty created by all of this could well be a dampener on economic activity. You could argue the other way, which is that central banks should stay their hand on interest rate rises. So I could argue this both ways, actually. um, And I could probably confuse myself terribly. So I'm going to ask you, if I was a central banker, what would you be advising me to do, Jim?
0: Well, there's lots of mixed signals out there at the moment, Chris. I just point out that gold went to $1,913 an ounce uh, today, which is the highest in nine months. And I think that kind of proves a point I've often made in the past that gold should be part of a balanced investment portfolio, and 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 I I say that as distinct from cryptocurrency. Okay, <laughs> going back to that old um, issue, but no, um, if you look at what's happening on oil markets, as you say, oil tipping a um, hundred dollars a barrel at the moment, and Brent crude is up forty eight percent year on year natural gas prices up 61% and of course uh, you know if, if we have war, the, the obvious risk is that those prices rise further so that 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 is obviously a potential source of higher prices everywhere and indeed over the last uh, 12 months energy costs have been the biggest driver of inflation everywhere um, so that's one issue, but of course, increasing interest rates is not going to bring oil prices down, you know. And I think we need to be very, very clear about that. So there is certainly a question mark over the wisdom of central banks increasing interest rates in the face of an energy shock such as this. Okay, but, but if that, we got a global that...
1: if we got a global tightening of interest rates with the states and and UK and Europe and other major central banks all whacking up interest rates now that provoked a global recession. Yes, that, that would that could growth. get that could get oil prices down.
0: It would reduce the demand for oil, absolutely. But you know, per, per se, um, increasing interest rates does not increase the supply of oil to get prices down. Okay, I take your point. You can engineer. A deep global recession that would significantly reduce the demand for oil, that would bring prices down. But I'm not sure that's the way you address a supply-side shock. From a central banker's perspective, there's there's other you know conflicting signals emerging. Um, in the last couple of days, we've had purchasing managers indicate indices, excuse me, purchasing managers indices published in a number of countries, and a purchasing managers index. For listeners, it's a diffusion index, meaning that in manufacturing and in services, um, businesses operating in both of those parts of economies are asked a whole series of questions and then the answers are compiled in a diffusion index. And quite simply, if it reads above 50, it means that more companies are expanding the contracting. If it reads below 50, it means that more companies are contracting contracting. Than expanding. And in recent months, the indices for services and manufacturing in the United Kingdom, in the Eurozone, have been um, trading well above 50. Okay. And yesterday, we got the latest um, Eurozone personal managed indices showing that the composite index, that's if you com- combine the two service and manufacturing indices increase from 52.3 to 55.8 and within that both services and manufacturing activity expanding strongly. Okay so that's an argument and and indeed this morning we got the German ifo the ifo institute's index of business conditions in Germany it jumped strongly from 96 to 98.9 suggesting that you know German manufacturing is much more optimistic about the future, that activity levels are picking up. So they're all indicators of strengthening economic activity. But within those indices, what also became obvious is that there are signs now, tentative signs, albeit that these supply side constraints, these price pressures are starting to ease. So this may be the first straw in the wind that this COVID-related Surge in inflation is actually starting to dissipate. Um, but then you throw in on top of that what's happening in the Ukraine at the moment and the impact it's had on oil and gas prices, and it, it complicates the whole issue. Um, interestingly, in the UK, we had the purchasing managers' indices as well showing the same thing strong numbers, and within that, um, supply disruptions and price pressures may be starting to ease. So it's, it's it's a very, very confusing picture for central bankers at the moment. Um, uh, I suspect the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve will, from March onwards, continue. Well, in the case of the Federal Reserve starting to tighten interest rates, in the case of the Bank of England, we could get a third increase. Um, Do you think that they should be asking governments to tighten fiscal policy as well? I don't, actually, because d- do you believe the problem with inflation at the moment is driven by excess demand? Um, well, okay. I think
1: the fact that we're starting to see it leak here and there a bit into wages is is the red flag for me, is is the warning. And but, but,
0: but, but, that, but that's not a demand side problem.
1: No, because I do think at the end of the day, what we've got is both demand and supply issues, because an awful lot of... Um, what's been going on has been to do with supply side, as you say. But we've had the most humongous monetary and fiscal stimulus around the world, particularly in the United States, where correspondingly the inflation problem is is at its worst, where there's the most evidence that it's leaking into wages. And so, if you if the source of your problem is at least in part monetary and fiscal stimulus, as well as all these supply side issues. And we know that the central banks want to start reversing some of the monetary stimulus. Maybe the time has come to think about reversing some of the fiscal stimulus as well.
0: I think the notion of discussing fiscal austerity in the current environment of so much uncertainty, I don't think makes sense at this juncture. Um, I think it's a policy that should not be pursued. I think politically, socially and economically, it would be a mistaken policy.
1: Um, I can I can, I can accept that and, and um, see why you would argue that. But one of the things that it does, we talked about it complicating the life of the central banker. It complicates the life of the finance minister as well, particularly one in Ireland who over the next couple of years, two or three years, is going to be looking into a general election. And One of the things that we've been betting on is that they would use the strong, relatively strong fiscal position to launch a at least one giveaway budget prior to that election. And if we're arguing that maybe kind of, sort of, there's a need for thinking about fiscal policy again, the idea that you should tighten fiscal policy will park that one. But surely it suggests that we shouldn't be going on another fiscal expansion, given what's going on with inflation.
0: Well, I I think there's no possibility that we're going to see a fiscal expansion in Ireland this year. Um, What about
1: you know, next year or the year after?
0: price. Well, let, let's see. A lot can change in 12 months. I mean, OK, the, the next budget in this country is October. You will not see fiscal stimulus in that, I believe. Uh, then the next budget after that, which is possibly the last one before a general election, will be October 2023. Um, That's... You know, it's it's nearly two years down. Well, it's eighteen months down the road. So, or a little bit more than eighteen months. So, the notion that you start talking about what they might do in that budget at this juncture, I don't think makes sense. There's there's way way too much time to pass before we can make any conclusive argument about that. But I I just think Chris, following the lessons learned from austerity in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine, and particularly the political consequences of that austerity. I think governments would be very, very reluctant to actually uh, pursue that course of action at this juncture. Um, I think the main onus is on central banks at this juncture. And the whole notion of quantitative tightening, for example, should be a key part of the policy response to what's going on. If you want to take stimulus out of the system, you start reversing the quantitative easing. We call it quantitative tightening. Um, I take your remarks
1: about austerity um, because austerity was a mistake. Anybody with any sense said it at the time, and certainly anybody looking back now from a historical perspective, virtually all economists recognise that austerity was a big, big error in the context of the time in which it was delivered. But that doesn't mean that fiscal tightening is always and everywhere a bad idea. Because in economics, as we have discussed so many times on this podcast, Jim, The answer to most questions is it all depends. And the context is very, very important. And I just wonder whether given what's going on with inflation and uh, economies booming in the way that they are, including Ireland, the time for thinking about, well, maybe this time a little bit of fiscal tightening, not austerity, is appropriate. It was inappropriate because you were tightening fiscal policy back then at a time when the economy was on its back. But tightening fiscal policy when the economy is flying is a different kettle of fish. That's all.
0: Yeah, well, Chris, if if I was to break the subject of economics up into political and economy, okay, I can see the economy arguments for doing what you're suggesting might happen. In other words, you tighten fiscal policy through a combination of cutting government expenditure and or increasing taxes. But then if you superimpose on top of that the political part, um, I think it would be political suicide in the current environment, because uh, we, we've had so sub- the rise of political populism, we've seen the political um, fallout over the last ten years from the austerity policies that were pursued after the Great Financial Crash, and they definitely were instrumental in, um, I believe, the rise of Trump, the the growth of populism, and in, in indeed you could say the rise of Sinn Fein in this country. Um, so. This, that, and, and you, you tighten fiscal policy in this sort of political environment, I think will be absolutely nuts. Um, I think central bankers have to take up most of the slack at this juncture, not governments. If governments do, I think they will regret it and we will all regret it. On that note,
1: Jim, I think we ought to leave it. This obviously is a subject to which we will return. So as always, great to talk to you.
0: Yeah, thanks, Chris. I think we just can't reiterate enough just how bloody uncertain, complicated um, economics and policymaking are at the moment.
1: Indeed. Thanks a lot,
0: mate. Thank you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.